1976, I was a final year theology student in Stellenbosch. It was the year in which apartheid South Africa exploded with the Soweto uprising and the ensuing protests that spread like wildfire from campuses to the streets. It was in a way the beginning of the end for the apartheid ideology and society, although the way would still be long and terrible history of resistance and oppression. At that time, our Stellenbosch faculty was, of theology was all white, like the university, and our class was all male and all Dutch reformed, all others excluded. Pictures on the walls and in the halls were recalling the deep involvement of our reformed tradition of celebrated professors and of the white Dutch reformed church in the birth and development and theological justification of apartheid. Engaged in a thesis for the licentiate in theology with a view to the ministry, I was studying the Dutch reformed theologian from the early 20th century, Herman Barfink. In those years of struggle, some of us learned to read the tradition against the tradition. In order to be reformed, we had to learn how to read our reformed tradition against our reformed tradition. We had to reclaim our own church and tradition from and against our own church and tradition. We had to read our historical figures against their own practices. We had to read our confessional documents against their own reception histories. This may be true in more general ways of all living traditions, but for many of us it was of crucial importance. It really mattered. Perhaps no one offers a more dramatic illustration of this reimagining of our own tradition than the South African black theologian, church leader, ecumenical figure, political activist, and prolific speaker and author, Alan Busak. In his autobiography, Running with Horses, Reflections of an Accidental Politician, he recalls how he struggled with such thoughts standing on a table on the lawn outside the cafeteria of the University of the Western Cape in 1976, just after Soweto, on his return from doctoral studies abroad, searching for words to address an angry crowd of students. Remembering that moment, he speaks passionately about many who influenced and inspired him, including John Calvin and Abraham Kuyper. In the Netherlands, he writes, he came to know them in a new and different way. No longer the Calvin and Kuyper who were used in South African church circles to justify racism, but a radically different Calvin and Kuyper. And he explains in deeply personal language what they meant to him. Of Calvin, he writes, in the Netherlands, I met the radical Calvin, 
the constructive revolutionary whose fiery sermons about poverty and wealth and whose deeply moving writings on Holy Communion and baptism forever captured my mind and heart. The Calvin of the persuasively logical arguments about politics and civil responsibility as the way of Christian discipleship. The Calvin for whom the Lordship of Jesus Christ was the explosive driving force of our deepest spirituality, personal, heartfelt, and public. At last I understood what Reformed theology was all about. Of Kuiper, he writes, I was in the land of Abraham Kuiper. In South Africa, I met him in the new Kuiperian racist ideological theology of the Dutch Reformed Church. That Kuiper offended me. But here I met Kuiper, the radical social thinker who thought ferociously for the poor and the less privileged in Holland, armed with his Bible, his understanding of Reformed theology, and his accurate and devastating analysis of 19th century Dutch society. Here was the Kuiper of the 1891 Social Congress, the man who claimed that he was engaged in politics for the sake of justice because there was not a single inch of life that did not fall under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Words that he spoke here in Princeton. Here was the Kuiper who proclaimed that in the struggle between rich and poor, Jesus never takes his place with the wealthier, but always stands with the poorer. No ifs, buts, or howevers about it, the words burnt on the pages. This was like nothing I had ever heard in those mind control sessions called theology classes back home. He could have added Nicholas Woltersdorf and Paul Lehman and Karl Barth to mention only a few names well known in Princeton. His friendship with Woltersdorf has been long-standing, formative and inspiring for both. Of Lehman, Busak once wrote, Lehman's theology has had a profound influence on my theological pilgrimage and I rate his transfiguration of politics among the most formative theological texts I have ever read. They both helped him to read the tradition with new eyes. Of a volume of essays called On Reading Karl Barth in South Africa, he wrote that designed to repossess the Christian heritage for the oppressed, this volume is vitally important in the reappropriation exercise, a bold step in the contemporary theological debate, a deliberate attempt to reread traditional theology. Not only the future belongs to those in quest of liberation, he said, but also significant, neglected, or misinterpreted parts of our theological heritage. So that reclaiming Bart witnesses to the gross misuse of the Christian tradition by Christian spokespersons for the oppressors of this world. Reappropriation is never an easy task, he continued. However, it is vitally important 
since it seeks to restore to its rightful owners what has been taken from them. And black South Africans were discovering that many of the theological resources that consistently have been used in this country against us are in fact important resources in our struggle for spiritual and political liberation. The systematic exercise of reclaiming Baat could be the first step in a new theological era in South Africa, he wrote. For Busak, his own black theology was self-consciously a black reformed theology. It was a conscious refusal to let go of the tradition in the way that others wanted to do. It was a deliberate attempt, in his words, to identify, to revitalize, and to reappropriate the gospel we read about in the Bible, the gospel which our oppressors have distorted and idolatrously used to legitimate their own selfish ends. When I received the invitation to deliver the 2018 Annie Kinkett Warfield Lectures, I was immediately reminded of 1976. The letter is an invitation to develop any reformed doctrine within the context of our reformed theological heritage, which reminded me of Alan Busak and Hermann Bavink. In his Gereformeerde Dogmatiek, translated as Reformed Dogmatics, discussing the doctrine of God, Bavink focuses on election. In his tradition, the very heart of the Reformation. And he contrasts the doctrine of election with the teachings of Pelagianism. In order to appreciate the thrust of his words, it may be helpful to listen to him at some length. Both for unbelievers and believers, Barfink writes, the doctrine of election is a source of inexpressibly great comfort. He is deliberately polemical. The claim of Pelagianism is precisely that election leads to anxiety and fear, to the very opposite of inexpressibly great comfort. Bafon continues substantiating his surprising claim, if it salvation, well-being, flourishing, our comfort, if that were based on justice and merit, all would be lost. But now that election operates according to grace, there is hope even for the most wretched. This is his claim. For him, the good news of God's free and gracious election. Now, suddenly, surprisingly, there is hope even for the most wretched. If work and reward were the standard of admission into the kingdom of heaven, he continues, its gates would be opened for no one. Or if Pelagius' doctrine were the standard, and the virtuous were chosen because of their virtue, 
and Pharisees because of their righteousness. Wretched publicans would be shut out. Pelagianism has no pity. Again, these words directly contradict the Pelagian accusation that election has no pity, but is hard and merciless and cruel and terrifying. The exact opposite applies, argues Barfink. Pelagianism has no pity, since it makes our salvation dependent upon ourselves and our virtues and our achievement, while election is merciful, bringing hope even for the most wretched. To believe in and to confess election, often proceeds, is to recognize even the most unworthy and degraded human being as a creature of God and an object of God's eternal love. This is both the ground and the consequence of the doctrine of election for Barfink, therefore of the central message of the Reformation, that we may and indeed should recognize even the most unworthy and degraded human beings as creatures of God and objects of God's eternal love. The almost direct allusions to Calvin cannot be overlooked. Calvin also described those whom we regard as the most unworthy and degraded of human beings and then argued that God gave us two things to recognize in them, namely God's own glorious image and our own flesh. The purpose of election is not as it is so often proclaimed, to turn off the many, says Barfink, but to invite all to participate in the riches of God's grace in Christ. And then he draws remarkable conclusions. No one therefore has a right to believe that he or she is lost, for everyone is sincerely and urgently called to believe in Christ with a view to salvation, he says. No one can actually believe it, that they are lost, he says. For one's own life and all that makes it enjoyable is proof that God takes no delight in, our, in one's death. And no one really believes it, for that would be hell on earth, he adds. No, there is hope even for the most wretched, and therefore we may not, cannot, and do not believe that anyone is lost and not the object of God's eternal love. This is true even and precisely of the most wretched in our eyes. Election is thus a source of comfort and confidence, he says, since it assures us that the salvation of human beings is firmly established in the gracious and omnipotent good pleasure of God. Remarkably, this whole argument occurs in a section with the heading on earth as it is in heaven. And although Barfunk does not spell out any practical consequences for the Christian life, it is perhaps not far-fetched to assume that he would have been aware of them writing this. He clearly seems concerned with how we speak of others, how we look at others, see and regard strangers. 
recognize in one another objects of God's eternal love and therefore also objects of our love. He clearly cares about what our words may do to others. His argument seems to be a challenge to talk to and about others in such ways that they never lose hope, never become wretched in their own eyes, never begin to doubt that they are objects of God's eternal love and therefore also accepted by us. By being concerned with how we speak to and about others with the effects of the ways in which we talk about God on our listeners and hearers, Barfunk, of course, stands in a long tradition. Many figures in the Reformed tradition have been deeply concerned with the rhetorical effects of our language about God. Many figures cared about how our own language about God matters to those who hear us speak. As a humanist scholar and but also as pastoral theologian, John Calvin himself was a skilled and conscious, careful and deliberate rhetorician, as many have persuasively shown. His very deliberate rhetoric of piety, in the words of Serene Jones, is clear wherever one looks in his sermons, his commentaries, his letters, his occasional writings, but also in his Christian institutes. Far from being a merely rational and logical treatise, it shows from beginning to end his pastoral intentions. From the structure, which he so often carefully revises, to the verbs he so carefully uses for rhetorical effect, for comfort, for promise, for encouragement, for warning, for persuasion. Indeed, Doctrine itself is for Calvin not a system of truths in the plural, but the gospel itself, the good news of free grace and acceptance in Christ. And Calvin is deeply concerned with the ways in which words matter. When Karl Barth, in his Warfield lectures, published as Evangelical Theology and Introduction, uses the metaphor of faith as speaking the language of Canaan. He was standing in this rhetorical tradition where words matter because they move and affect those who hear us speak. One could perhaps claim that this has shown itself to be of particular importance for the ways in which the Reformed tradition spoke about election. It mattered whether they spoke about election or about predestination. It mattered whether they spoke of election and rejection in parallel ways. It mattered whether they spoke about election as mystery of grace or as a causal explanation for human actions. It mattered whether they spoke in the doxological tone of the biblical witnesses or in the rationalistic logic of scholastic formulations. It mattered whether they used election language to boast about their own status and special calling in history and society, or whether they used it, like Barfink, as a source of hope for even the most wretched in their own eyes. 
The Reformation historian Heike Oberman has argued that for the Reformed doctrine of election, everything depends on the historical context and the rhetorical purposes for which these promises are intended. Everything depends on the ways in which these words matter and to whom. In 1986, Obermann gave the Kuiper Lectures at the Freie Universiteit in Amsterdam on the greatness and limitations of Calvin's legacy. The revised version of these lectures was later published in The Two Reformations, a book which he dedicated to a friend and colleague from Stellenbosch, the classicist André Hugo, whom he described as a Puritan Calvin scholar who lived and died opposing apartheid. Calvin's views on election, Obermann claimed, can only be understood by those who do not focus on what he said, but on why he said that. To appreciate his doctrine of election, one has to consider what motivated Calvin. One has to pay attention to the intended rhetorical effects of these teachings and sermons. Predestination is an excellent example, he said, of a teaching which, however well and extensively documented with precise quotations, cannot be grasped unless one has an eye for its social and psychological roots. This apparently abstract doctrine was a matter of existential faith to those exiles who, far from home, in a language arising from their experiences of banishment, traveled through the wilderness, he explained. Without this vital historical and existential context, Calvin's teaching on election is scarcely intelligible today. In fact, he has much harsher words than scarcely intelligible for the ways in which the words of these teachings have since then been understood and used. Calvin's doctrine has become embarrassing to scholars in the Netherlands, he said, especially when they looked into the mirror of South Africa, which they rarely did with honesty, he added. There seems to be a chasm between the historical Calvin and the later Calvinism, resting words from the Genevan father which he never uttered, at least not in the way these words were now in the tradition being used. For Obermann, Calvin was a transitional figure to what he called the Third Reformation, the Reformation of the Refugees. Calvin's own words and his proclamation of election can therefore only be understood as belonging to the plight of the reformation of refugees. Once Calvinism, however, gained a firm footing in the Netherlands, the Palatinate, Scotland, and the United States, and became the faith of the established and the comfortable, these words were no longer understood, but misconstrued, he said. The doctrine of election for Calvin was an assurance of comfort to the persecuted and dispersed. In light of the diaspora, they were reading the gospel with new eyes. 
but in the later contexts of the national phase of world Calvinism, this rhetorical function was lost. The church in flight, said Obermann, discovered the comfort of election. And only in these historical contexts and experiences is the doctrine located and understood. For those who had no permanent place of residence, wrote Obermann, neither a valid passport nor a resident permit, election became their identity card. It became a code word for being protected by God in the diaspora. It became the refugees' comfort in their dispersion, in their search for survival amid powerful threats and dangers. By the time of the canons of Dort, commemorated this year after 400 years, and again much later when 20th century theology deliberately sidelined Calvin's doctrine of election, these original historical experiences where the doctrine made sense were no longer remembered, Obermann claimed. The result was, election, was that election was uprooted and displaced, torn from its biblical context and function and became an abomination. In Dort, he could no longer find much evidence of these persecuted refugee experiences which formed the existential context for the doctrine of election. From now on, systematic theologians in their learned treatises tended to ignore these experiences of wretchedness and struggle. They abstracted the rich tradition of faith from its living context and it became the repugnant doctrine of predestination on which thousands of theological treatises have since been written, textbooks, but no longer books to live by, no longer books that matter. Access was lost to the existential and biblical doctrine of Calvin's commentaries, sermons, and letters to afflicted churches, with the result that this history became one of the most appalling misunderstandings in church and theology. Obermann claimed. Progress and the external prosperity of life in the Christian West, he said, dried up this sparkling fountain of religious experience. Election, the biblical doctrine of God's faithfulness and overpowering grace, rediscovered in times of distress and persecution, now became a plaything for theologians and a rock of offense to believers, in his words. So outside of the original historical contexts, with the eyes of believers darkened by blood and tears, so that they cannot see anything of God's omnipotence and faithfulness, and have to cling against all the evidence of their senses to these promises alone, uh, Calvin's doctrine is not only, outside of this context, Calvin's doctrine is not only abhorrent, but also ungodly, Obermann concluded, and then issued a somber warning. As long as we are privileged, he said, to live under the protective canopies of our democratic rights, we should keep this tradition alive and pass it on to prepare, to prepare ourselves and our children for times which are coming, he warned. For cross and persecution belongs to the true church, 
even though there are periods without persecution. In his introduction to Christian theology called Faith-Seeking Understanding, the Princeton systematic theologian uh, Daniel Migliore concludes his chapter on the triune God by saying that we will have to rethink the doctrine of election. If the doctrine of the Trinity is indeed the distinctively Christian understanding of God, he says, then this understanding of God is to give direction and form to the Christian way of being in the world. The question to the church today is therefore obvious, he says. Is the God of Christian faith and devotion indeed the God of our lives? Or put in terms of the doctrine of election, does the everyday and public life of Christians give evidence of God's gracious election? Against such a background, one may claim that the ways in which the language of election was used and heard in South African reformed circles become deeply disturbing, but also challenging. Do our personal and corporate lives give evidence of commitment to the sovereignly gracious God? Do our lives give evidence of commitment to the God of election? And what would that mean? And how would that become visible? The lectures of this week will hopefully pursue some responses to this question. The rhetorical uses of this doctrine in South African reformed circles have often been described. It has been done in works by historians like Leonard Thompson's The Political Mythology of Apartheid, Donald Akinson's God's Peoples, and more recently Herman Giliumi's The Afrikaners. It has been done in popular historical novels like James Michener's The Covenant. Many of the widespread perceptions about ways in which notions of election and covenant functioned in Afrikaner circles are controversial and probably problematic, historically inaccurate. Still, such perceptions have been popular and widely shared and influenced how many people saw themselves and others. And therefore, three brief anecdotes may perhaps in conclusion be instructive in this regard. All three anecdotes are about Afrikaans-speaking poets and literary critics since the focus is on how words functioned and mattered. In 1962, the Dutch Reformed Congregation of Johannesburg, the oldest congregation in the city, celebrated their 75th year. The minister, Willy Jonker, asked one of their members, the respected poet, and professor of literature, N.P. van Wyk Lowe, probably the most famous, most respected Afrikaans poet, uh, for a poem. They're asking for a poem for this festive occasion. Van Wyk Lowe produced a passionate depiction of God's free grace, bringing hope to the most wretched of this world. Those not living in white houses and palaces, but outside the gates, shepherds full of dirt and dust, 
staying in shelters and smelling of smoke. Those first chosen were not learned scribes who coldly washed their hands and plates, but fisher folk and a tax collector. Those first called with such soft greetings were hardened men with callous and sweat. Those collected as first catch was a strange mixture beyond imagination of lepers and those possessed every color and creed all suddenly finding themselves accepted by his surprising smile. I wish I could read this to you in Afrikaans. Willy Jonker would later become the leading systematic theologian of the Dutch Reformed Church and in many ways a prophetic figure. He wrote the most important study of the doctrine of election in South African theology called Uit Freie Guns Alleen, Out of Free Grace Alone. And in the study he quoted the words of Barfunk with which we started as the motto of his book. Still later in his autobiographical Selfs die Kerk kan verander, even the church can change. Jonker quoted this poem in full and commented that Van Weyck Lowe understood so well that the church and also their congregation existed for the wretched of the city, for the elendiges, the, the word that Barfung used for the wretched. According to him, Van, Van Weyck Lowe understood already then what the confession of Belhar would confess much later, that God is in a special way the God of the destitute, the poor and the wronged, and calls God's church to follow. And he wondered how many members of the congregation at the time understood the meaning of this poem on God's surprising election of free grace and compassion. For most members of the congregation, the doctrine of election probably meant something completely different. In the same year, another Afrikaans voice, the black poet and playwright, philosopher and professor Adam Small, published a collection of poems called Guitar My Cross, literally Guitar My Cross. His father was a teacher and a leading figure in the Reformed congregations. His mother was Muslim. He attended Catholic schools. He was deeply steeped in the Bible and in the Reformed tradition. And in these powerful poems, he used satire, often with biblical allusions, to unmask and expose the apartheid ideology and life. He wrote these early first verses deliberately and subversively in Carps, the way in which so-called colored people in the townships of Cape Town speak Afrikaans. He did this very purposefully to establish Carps as a language in its own right. He explained at the time carrying the full fortune and fate of its speakers. At the same time, he deliberately and subversively used biblical motifs and allusions to ridicule and undermine the seemingly self-evident realities of the apartheid society and its theological justification. 
a well-known uh, literary critic, Dirk Opperman, described these poems as geuse liederen, as in weapons in the struggle, a reference to the struggle hymns of the uh, Dutch Protestants during the reformation of the refugees. And another authoritative literary critic, Rob Antunesen, observed that these poems deliberately, freely spoke and misspoke the word of God in order to unmask pseudo-Christianity. So the heading of the first long section of this volume is Geist. And the motto of the section reads, freely translated, God has shaken and rolled the dice and they just fell badly for us. That's all. These lines come from a poem in this section called Die Heere het geskommel, literally, The Lord has shaken the dice. The poem speaks with powerful, painful satire. Let the world say whatever they want to say, it doesn't matter. Everything is all right, we do not care, we cannot worry. We have cigarettes, cheap wine, lovers, and other nice things too. So what does anything matter? The Lord has shaken and rolled the dice, and they just fell badly for us. That's all. So let them talk. Let them call us scholars, hooligans, troublemakers, thugs, wretched. Never mind. They are children of Ham and they are children of Cain. It's all right. Never mind. It doesn't matter. We couldn't care. We shouldn't worry. The, the satirical overtones are unspoken but powerful. There is a popular doctrine and opinion around, he seems to suggest, proclaimed by the church and eagerly believed by those in privilege and power. That popular doctrine speaks of election and chosen people, and we are not included. We are pushed apart, rejected, marginalized, excluded. We are called names. We are regarded as outsiders, as different, wretched, as those who do not belong. According to this doctrine, our wretched fate is the will of God, the arbitrary result of the throw of divine dice. It could just as well have been different, but it is not. This is now the case. This is our fortune and our fate. So let's not complain. Let's not worry. Let's not care. What does it matter in any case? After all, the, the subtle subversion and the cynical social commentary speaks for itself. And a third anecdote. During the dark days of the 1970s, 70 delegates from churches, including several of the leading public intellectuals in South Africa, gathered in Mapumolo in Natal for a conference on church and nationalism. The speakers included people like the author Alan Payton of Cry the Beloved Country, uh, scholars from different disciplines like Johannes Degenaar, the philosopher, Dunbar Moody, uh, sociologist from the United States, uh, Jake Scherwell, Fatima Mir, a well-known activist and friend of Nelson Mandela, um, uh, theologians from different persuasions, uh, Manas Butelezi, Piet Meiren, that some of you may know, Karl Bosov, uh, son-in-law of Hendrik Verwoerd, and church leaders like Safanya Kameta from Namibia and Wolfram Kistner, Bayes Nadia. Uh, it was a gathering of the who's who 
in intellectual circles in South Africa. In some of the papers later published as Church and Nationalism in South Africa, as well as during the discussions, the so-called myth of a chosen people played a key role. After all, this was central to how many people spoke and thought about nationalism in apartheid South Africa. These words mattered. Years later, Jake Scherville, the celebrated literary critic and social commentator from the University of the Western Cape, later rector, and then the key figure in President Nelson Mandela's office. Jake Scherville remembered this conference in an essay to honor the philosopher Degenaar. During the concluding discussion at the conference, Scherville recalled, Degenaar referred to a black participant who responded to a white speaker with the words, if you talk like that, this makes me lose all hope. Both Degenaar at the time and Gervel, looking back, argued that what South Africa needed was a grammar for life together, a way of speaking about others and to others that would never make them lose hope. Gervel used this expression, a grammar for life together, repeatedly to illustrate that the form of our discourse informs the nature of our life together. What he learned from Degenaar and practiced during his whole life was the need to work without tiring on the creation of a grammar for life together in justice. And do these words not resonate with what Alban Barfunk said about the doctrine of election? That to believe in and to confess election is to recognize even the most unworthy and degraded human being in our eyes as creatures of God and objects of God's eternal love, so that there is hope for even the most wretched. That the purpose of election is to invite all to participate in the riches of God's grace so that no one will lose hope. That this is a source of inexpressibly great comfort for all and everyone since the salvation of human beings is firmly established in the gracious good pleasure of God. And should this not be the concrete consequences when the personal and public life of Christians gives evidence of our commitment to the gracious God. Should we not seek to imagine ways to welcome others so that no one is excluded and no one loses hope? In 1976, when our country was burning, words like these inspired many of my generation to imagine a different world. For us, this was what we heard in scripture and experienced in prayer and worship. For us, these words mattered. They had radical implications for faith, church, and public life.
In the rest of these lectures, I hope to delve somewhat deeper into what we thought we heard in Scripture and worship and how that mattered to us.